the chapter John 3 that we're going to be studying today opens, or, and, I'm sorry, the chapter John 3 that we're going to be studying today closes in the final verse that we'll be reading today with a, a, a reminder of a story in the Old Testament. It's one of those stories that perhaps you've read before and you've glanced over, but never taken time to really consider what this story actually meant and the significance of it. But Jesus brings this Old Testament story up in the middle of the passage today. As the story goes, the Jewish people had just escaped from Israel. If you remember the story, it was the Exodus where they had been held in slavery and, and God had miraculously parted the Red Sea and the, the Jews had escaped slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. Just imagine that miracle. Imagine being one of those people who had literally walked through walls of water, escaping slavery, and, and walking to the other side and looking back and seeing the Egyptian army annihilated, not because they went to battle, but because God went to battle on their behalf. Imagine seeing that type of miracle. It would be incredible. That would be something that would forever change our life. And yet these Israelites, they get stuck wandering through the desert. See, God had said, I'm delivering you out of Egypt. I'm going to send you to the promised land. But the way was long and the journey was difficult. They had these wandering years in the desert. And, and they began to grumble. They began to complain. It, 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 what's amazing to me is that God was continuing to show himself in miraculous ways. He, he led them by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was right there in their presence. And yet, in the midst of that, their fickleness comes out. And they just start complaining. The food's not good enough. The water's not clean enough. And in one of these accounts, this is recorded in, Genesis, in Numbers 21, verse 7 and 8. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. You see, what had happened is the people had complained so much that God had said, It is time for you to be disciplined. And he sent snakes into their camp. They were camping in a place where there were tons of snakes, and snakes had come into their camp and were biting people, and many had gotten sick and died. And the people suddenly realized, We've done something wrong. We need to repent. And they said to Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, here's what you need to do, Moses. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Hear those words. Moses, make a fiery serpent, lift it up on a pole, and everyone who's been bitten and is sick and is dying, when they look up at that pole, of that serpent on that pole, they will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent, and that person would live. What a seemingly random story in the Old Testament. How many times maybe have we read over this and said, what's the point of this story in the Old Testament? Many times in the Old Testament, the stories that we read are pointing us to something greater. They're looking forward to something that was yet to come. Moses lifts an image of the curse, an image of a serpent, not just the thing that was biting them, but the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the one through whom all the pain and sin originally started with that serpent. Lift that up on a pole, Moses. Let them look on that, and that will bring them salvation on this day. You know, I think the Israelites are quite a relatable bunch in those wandering years. Sometimes I read those passages, and I think, man, how... How could you be so silly? 
and, and, and small-minded. How do you have a pillar of fire of God leading you and you're complaining that the water is not good? It just doesn't make sense to me. I just constantly think if God was that clear to me, I would never complain. And then I lift my head up from prayer and I start complaining about something. You know, those Israelites are a lot more relatable than we give them credit for. All of us are without excuse for the incredible miracles that God has performed in each of our lives. This community is a miracle that God has brought together. And yet how often do we go back into those wandering years and say, God, that miracle's not enough. That miracle's not enough. You're going to have to do something more than that because right now I just feel like grumbling. In the midst of the weariness of the road, in the midst of our wandering years, waiting for the promised land, we begin to grow weary. And what happens to us is we forget the basics. We forget the basics of our faith and the, the incredible miracle of what God's done in our life. And so today what I want to do, I want to take a day, this Mother's Day, I want to take a day and bring us right back to the basics of the Christian faith. I want to remind us what this whole thing is all about so we can go back to the beginning and remember the miracle of what God has done in our lives. To do that, we're going to look at this conversation that Jesus has with this man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And it's a very hard passage to read because in this passage, Jesus is going to very clearly lay out just how a person is able to go to heaven. How is a person able to walk into the kingdom of God? John chapter 3. Let's start with verses 1 through 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. <clears throat> Jesus answered him, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now pause there. Let's talk about Nicodemus for a second. Nicodemus, his name literally means victor of the people. We get our word Nike, the shoe company Nike. That word means victory, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is where we get that from, the victor of the people. Another way to translate that would be conqueror or superior one. <laughs> I don't know what his parents were thinking when, he named, when he, they named Nicodemus that, but Nicodemus had a little bit of a mindset of who he was, didn't he? He had a little bit of a Nicodemus complex, maybe is that how we could put it. He was a superior one. Now this man was a Pharisee. And that tells us quite a bit about this man and his worldview. By everyone's standard, Nicodemus would have been a really good guy. I want you to hear that. Sometimes we read the New Testament and, and we see how much Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and confronted them over situations that were happening. But overall, the Pharisees were very religious people. This is a guy who probably would have fasted twice a week, definitely would have tithed at least a tenth of everything, probably would have spent two hours a day in prayer at the local temple. This was a man who had the respect of everyone around him, and it says that he was a leader of them. That means he was in the Sanhedrin. He was probably in his mid-60s, this Nicodemus, and had lived a very good, from an outward perspective, moral, respectable life. Everyone would have looked at Nicodemus and said, if anyone's got it together, it's Nicodemus. That's the model, right? That's the guy we should all 
follow. He's got a good reputation as a good man with good moral principles. And he comes to Jesus. Overall, likable, good guy. Nicodemus approaches Jesus. When does the text tell us he approaches Jesus? There was a man, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus when? By night. What an interesting little detail. Why would a man come to Jesus at night? Well, maybe it's just because he finished dinner and the sun was setting and he was coming out. But I don't think the author would include the detail that he came by night if it just happened to be the time of day that he was first made free. You see, this man, Nicodemus, had a lot to lose by going to a guy like Jesus. For, for starters, Pharisees lived a very clean life, and there were certain things they couldn't do, certain things they couldn't touch. Many Pharisees wouldn't even go out at night for fear that they might touch something, like a dead animal that might be on a street, which would have been common in those days, because if they touched something dead on the street, they would be ceremonially unclean for weeks. A lot of Pharisees were so religious, they wouldn't even go out at night for fear of touching something unclean. Yet Nicodemus chooses to risk that to go see Jesus. Now, the, the second thing that's interesting about this is that Nicodemus, to me, feels like a very authentic, genuine guy. As he comes to Jesus, we have to remember the Pharisees really didn't like Jesus overall. All of his peers were saying, just stay away from that guy we got to find a way to stop Jesus. we got to find a way to keep that Jesus quiet. So Nicodemus, in terms of his relationships with his peers and his career and his respectability as a man, he's got a lot to lose going to Jesus. And so he goes by the cover of night. When no one else can hear this conversation, because he genuinely wants to get to his heart. He wants to have a space where he doesn't have to fear the judgment of his peers, and he can just have one-on-one -on -one with Jesus and say, Jesus, talk to me, I got some questions. You know, he comes to Jesus at night, and I think part of that also is that he had some unsatisfied longings in his heart. Here's a man who is going about this life as a Pharisee, and everyone's looking at him saying, this guy's got to have it all together. He's got his life in order, and yet he comes at night because he says there's something more and I'm missing it. There's got to be something more. I know everyone thinks my life's together. I know the veneer I have, but deep down in my soul, there's something that cries for more, more out of life, more adventure, more fullness. There's got to be more than this religious, pious life I'm living that's void of anything adventurous and full. It comes to Jesus by night. You know, in the very previous chapter, one of the last things we saw Jesus do before Nicodemus comes to him is Jesus had entered the temple, and there were all these money changers standing in front of the table, the, the temple, and these money changers were ripping people off who were trying to go worship at the temple. They were trying to turn, they were converting their money from one currency to another, and they were, it was a get-rich-quick scheme on the temple doorsteps. And Jesus walks into the temple, he sees this get-rich-quick scheme happening in his father's house, and the text says he made a cord of a whip out of cords, and he started whipping the money changers out of the temple, flipping the tables over, making a scene. And you know who would have been there? The Pharisees. They would have been right there watching this whole thing. And I think what happened to Nicodemus is he was watching this 31-year-old Jesus rabbi who was a carpenter from Bethlehem. No religious training like the other Pharisees. Didn't come through the right path. Didn't have the right family. And he steps up. Nicodemus looks down and goes, who's that guy? Whatever he's got, 
I want that. That is amazing. The Pharisees were overall angry. I think Nicodemus looked at Jesus in that moment and said, whatever he's got, I don't have, and I want it. I'm coming to him no matter how I got to get to him. He had an unsatiable void in his heart that said there's got to be more. He saw and tasted Jesus and said, I think that's the very thing my heart has been longing for. My tidy, put-together, faux-righteousness is nothing compared to the reality of Jesus. How many of you have unsatisfied longings in your heart as well? How many of you come into a place like this, and, and there's a very easy way in our modern world to put a veneer on our life, a, a kind of shell over our life that makes us look like we got our life put together. Makes us look like we're doing the things we ought to do. We've, we're taking care of ourselves. We're going through the motions. We're coming to church. But somewhere deep in you, just like Nicodemus, you're saying, I read the stories of Jesus and I want that. I don't know how to break out of this shell that I'm living in, but whatever Jesus has, I want that. I want a life on fire. I want a life that's just on fire for something greater than me. Any of you have any of that unsatisfied longing in your heart this morning? Yeah, I think Jesus is a very, uh, Jesus in this moment is a very relatable story with Nicodemus. And you know, Nicodemus's story is interesting. Oftentimes when we tell testimonies of people, stories of people coming to meet Jesus for the first time, it's many times th th these rock bottom moments. And I love those testimonies. I do. I love the stories of when people are just going as far as they can away from God and God rips them out of hell and says, no, you're my child. I'm saving your life. I actually knew a guy one day, his life had hit such rock bottom, he went to his window, fell on his knees, prayed, God, would you give me a sign? And in that moment, a lightning bolt struck the telephone pole across the street, exploding it, and a splinter of wood landed at his knees. He used to keep that splinter of wood in his pocket. I love those stories. God does that all the time, but that's not Nicodemus' story. Nicodemus is your regular guy who's kind of got life together as far as everyone thinks. But Nicodemus' story is no less miraculous. Nicodemus' story is no less miraculous than the lightning bolt striking the telephone pole because both of those people have a problem and both are coming to Jesus for the answer. Nicodemus comes and cries out, tell me what's more. And, and Jesus responds this way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, hear that word, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this is shocking for two reasons. If you're not shocked by this statement, you're not reading the verse correctly. It's shocking for two reasons. Number one, it's shocking. Nicodemus never even asked a question. I mean, look back at it. Verse one and two, Nicodemus just made a statement. He said, well, Jesus... Everyone has to admit you're pretty powerful. And Jesus reads this man's heart like an open book in the middle of the night. It, it's like Jesus just looks at him and says, yeah, I do do a lot of miracles, don't I? Okay, let me show you exactly what's wrong with your heart, Nicodemus. Nicodemus never even asked a question. And yet Jesus, seeing this man in the darkness of night, sees his heart laid open bare before him and gets right to the center of Nicodemus' heart. That's shocking that Jesus has that power. But number two, it's shocking because of this. If Jesus had said you had to be born again to, 
a man like Zacchaeus, a tax collector who was cheating people out of their money, or a man like the thief on the cross next to Jesus who was being crucified because he had committed some horrendous crime, or perhaps the woman who was caught in adultery, everyone might agree, yeah, that person needs to be born again. That person needs to have a start over, a do over, a reset of their life. But he doesn't say it to that person. He says it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you need to start over. You need to be born again. All your religion, all your training, all your theological training, all your seminary, all your years of teaching, all your years of leading the people, all the religion you've tacked on, all your ability to follow the rules, all your respectability as a man, all your moral accomplishments, you need to be born again. Start over, Nicodemus. You know, many of us approach Jesus in the same way that I think Nicodemus approaches Jesus. Nicodemus was looking for a man to get some of the dings and dents out of himself. He wasn't looking for a total overhaul of his life. Some of us treat Jesus like he's an auto mechanic, and our life is a car that we bring up to Jesus, and, and we say, hey, look, auto mechanic, we just got some issues we need you to fix. We're well aware that we're not perfect people. There's brokenness. There's dents. Maybe we've been in an accident here or two in the past, and what we're asking for is, Jesus, the mechanic, can you just come in, take my life as it is, keep the car intact, and just get those dents out. I might need a new fender. Just fix up some of these things. By the way, if you can turbocharge it while you're at it, Jesus, that would would be phenomenal. And Jesus is an auto mechanic. It's not what he does. You pull the car into this auto shop and Jesus says it's totaled. It's totaled. The car's totaled. You brought it in totaled. It's totaled. It's not drivable on the streets. Can't enter the kingdom of God this way with this car. Ain't going to happen. You need a new car. That is shocking. How many of us approach Jesus and our mentality is like Nicodemus's that we say, Jesus, what we want with you is to just fix our life up a little bit. We want a little bit of religion, a little more rules, a little more order, a little bit of spirituality. Can we tack that on to the overall thrust of my life? That would be just fine, Jesus. Go through the motions of religion just like Nicodemus had been doing likely for decades. Jesus all the while standing there saying, yeah, you got to be born Again, and what's fascinating about this is, is his language here. You've got to be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to break that down real clearly for us so there's no confusion on what Jesus is saying. There is a heaven and there is a hell after we die. Scripture is fundamentally clear on that. And the kingdom of heaven is associated with heaven. Heaven begins now in this life, but it extends into eternity, where all of our souls will live for eternity. Our souls are not finite. They go on eternally. And we know that souls will end up in one place. Heaven is where God is, where the fullness of God dwells, and we exist in community. Hell is where God is not. He says, if you want to participate in heaven... If you want that experience now in this life for however many years God gives you and in eternity, if you want to enter that kingdom of heaven, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus responds as any right-minded person would say, Jesus, are you out of your mind? Look at what Nicodemus says. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? 
How is that possible, Jesus? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's Nicodemus being sarcastic with Jesus, if you didn't catch it. He didn't actually think that was possible. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, Jesus, are you out of your mind? Jesus responds to him in this fascinating way, and he gets real clear with what he means. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Jesus goes on, Jesus answered, truly, truly, that means listen very closely. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, in those few verses, Jesus has broken out what he means by you must be born again. Let's look at what he says. The first thing he says is this, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now that's a funky way of saying you got to be born again, but it's actually a way that Nicodemus would have picked up on like this. To our modern ears, we might say, what's Jesus trying to say? Is he talking about baptism with water or, or something like that? We're not quite sure, but Nicodemus would have heard Jesus say that, and he would have said, oh, I know what you're talking about. Jesus is referencing, referencing Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Let me put these verses up for us behind me. These are a prophecy that every good Jewish person in Israel would have known about. This prophecy reads this way. I will, here's God speaking, many years before Jesus, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice that's written well before Christ, but it's all in the future tense. Here's a prophecy from Ezekiel saying, one day, one day, people of Israel, one day I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to sprinkle you with water and, and cleanse away the filth from you. And, and I'm going to give you a new spirit, not like the one you have. I'm going to give you a whole new spirit that's totally going to overhaul your life. And it's going to give you a new heart. See, Nicodemus, if he was truly faithful, should have been living his life in anticipation of the fulfillment of that verse. One day, one day God's going to change everything. And his hope should not have been that I can go through life as a religious person. His hope should not have been that he could accomplish a great respectability as a religious person. His hope should have been my, my heart is corrupt above all things, but God is able because he has promised he would to fix the issue of my broken heart. But that's not how Nicodemus had structured his life. Nicodemus had taken his eyes off the promises and he had focused on what he thought he was able to do to earn rightness with God. See, Nicodemus should have known very well that there's a problem with the human heart. And that's a problem that all of us know as well. Every one of us is familiar with the reality that this prophecy from Ezekiel must be real because there's an issue with our heart. 
Doctors recognize this is true. They deal with death on a regular basis. Psychologists recognize this is true. As they deal with the mind and with people going through tremendous brokenness, there's something wrong with the heart. Sociologists recognize this is true as they look at human relationships with each other and they pinpoint all the ways that we argue and all the ways that we just can't seem to get along and relate to each other. And if each of us in this room today are 100% honest with each other, we all recognize that we have a fundamental issue at the heart level. It's our heart that accounts for our brokenness in our life, from broken lives to broken promises to broken hearts to shame to grief to lies to sexual immorality to addictions to vengeful, broken, spiteful thoughts. All of that stems from a fundamental shared heart condition spiritually that every person in this room and every person you pass on the streets has before God. The problem is not that we don't try hard enough to live good lives. It's that no matter how hard we try, we will always have a heart issue spiritually before God. A few weeks ago, I was minding my own business at home. I got a knock on the door. And there were two people Two men standing at my door, ringing my doorbell. And I assumed they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And I love when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on my door because I just love to open Scripture with them and walk through and, and navigate theology well with them and, and help them see who God is and how he's made himself known through Jesus Christ. And, and these two weren't actually Jehovah's Witnesses. These two were uh, pushing the Socialist Party of Chicago. Even better. You know, evangelism doesn't get any easier than two people knocking on your door asking if they can talk to you. That's as easy as it gets. So I said, you know what? Come on in, guys. Let's have a good conversation. So we sat down for about an hour or so, and they shared all their ideas about so socialism. And we had a good conversation. And eventually I said, you know, you've got a problem. They said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, let's open the scripture together. Open up, and we talked about the scripture a little bit, and we talked about Matthew 15. And Matthew 15 says this, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is Jesus. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. They come out of the heart. I said, my friends, socialism will always end in oppression. For the same reason that capitalism will always end in injustice. Because at the end of the day, we all have a heart issue. And trading one form of government for another form of government does not fix the heart issue that is shared across all people. We need a solution to the heart issue. You can't pass a law to make people love each other. The problem is our heart, not the laws. We need to have an overhaul of the human heart. And I believe fundamentally that Jesus Christ is literally the only one who can fix the heart issue. Do you want to talk about Jesus and how he can fix your heart issue today? <laughs> one of them wanted to make a beeline for the door. <laughs> and the other one looked at me with a look that I'm pretty sure was quite similar to the one Nicodemus must have had with Jesus. It was almost like this. Tell me more. He, he actually said, I, I've never heard anyone talk about the heart like that before. 
You, you see, we share a heart issue with all of humanity. It's real. It accounts for the situations and the world that you and I live in, the news that we read every day, and the news that we have with our own family on a daily basis. The heart is corrupted above all things. It's been broken since the Garden of Eden. And every one of us shares this broken heart. And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus says in this passage, if you have never gone through the process of being born again, then you still only have your first heart. You need to have God give you an entirely new heart and be born of the Spirit for the very first time. Let me walk through some common lies that I experience when I talk to people about this. Some people think that they can inherit this new birth. They think that they grew up in a Christian family. I talk to people all the time. I say, hey, tell me about how you came to faith in Jesus. They said, well, my parents were Christians. I've just always been around Christianity since I was a kid, and my life is a reflection of that. That's not how it works. No person inherits a new birth. Every person is born with a corrupted heart, and every person needs to make an individual choice to receive the new birth. Now, you heard me in child dedication today. My prayer that I pray over all my daughters every single night is God with their first memory, the one they have, their earliest memory, be that they place their faith in Jesus and never look back. I pray that every single day and over every child we dedicate here. And I believe that's true. I believe that's my wife's story, that she placed her faith in Christ as early as she possibly could. It certainly wasn't my story, but I believe that's possible, but... Every person needs to make a decision to trust in Jesus and receive a new heart from them. You can't inherit it. And if you're assuming that you're a Christian because your parents were Christians, you very well may never have experienced the new birth. The second thing is this. You cannot earn the new birth. This is Nicodemus' story. You, you can't come to church enough. You, you can't read your Bible enough. You can't do enough good works and stay away from all the icky stuff in Scripture that you're not supposed to do. Nicodemus did that far better than any of you ever will. Guarantee it. You'll never live up to the standard Nicodemus set. Yet Jesus looks Nicodemus in the eye and says, Nicodemus, you might be the most respected guy among all your peers. You are not receiving the kingdom of heaven as you are right now. You need to be born again. You cannot earn the new birth. I remember having a conversation with a Muslim woman one day, and she was telling us about her faith and the journey to Mecca she had recently taken. And we asked her, what, what was this like? Tell me about it. And her response to the question was, it was as if I had experienced a new birth in life. She used that language. It was as if I had experienced a new birth as I emotionally went around Mecca and made this trip. And the reality is, is what I wanted to say, I wish I could go back to that moment because what I wanted to say is there is a difference between an emotional experience, even a spiritual experience, and new birth as it's defined here in Scripture. You cannot do something or go somewhere to receive the new birth. You can't earn it. The third thing is this, you cannot fake the new birth. You can fool a lot of people. You can. You can fool me. You can fool a lot of people in your family, and you can fool a lot of people in your lives. But putting a veneer of Christianity on your life, learning how to kind of baptize yourself in Christian slogans, 
Put the Christian bumper sticker on your car. Put a, a Christian sticker on your guitar amp or on your computer screen and, and have a Bible verse of the day come up on your phone. Memorize a few passages. Anyone can do these things. That does not mean you've been born again. You, you, you can't fake the new birth. Genuinely, God has to rip your heart out of you and put a new heart inside of you. I love how Jesus refers to this process that doctrinally we call it regeneration. Jesus calls it the new birth. I love how he uses this metaphor of birth. I think it's perfect and it's fitting for Mother's Day as we talk about this. I think the new birth is perfect in a number of ways and it tells us all about what the new birth really is. Number one, first of all, the new birth is quite mysterious. That's what Jesus is saying at the end of this passage. He says it's kind of like the wind. He goes, look, the, the, the leaves rustle in the wind. You know the wind is there. You can feel it on your face. There's a freshness. There's a newness. But you can't quite tell how it happened. That's how it is with the new birth. When you receive it from God, you wake up one day and you say, my life is different. Jesus is king and I can't quite explain how or why. But that's what it is. And Jesus says there's a mysterious component to it. But it's also a lot like birth. Number one, in, in a birth, in a first physical birth, the mother does everything, right? The, the child is not the one to be celebrated for the miraculous feat they just performed. No one looks at a kid who's just been born and they're like, man, way to go. You crushed that. I can't believe you had the courage to do that. That must have been crazy. Great tuck and roll there. That was phenomenal. I mean, I can't even believe you managed to do that. No one looks at a kid who's just been born, and gives any credit to the child for what's just been accomplished. Everyone looks to the mother. Everyone says, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I can't believe you just did that. Way to go, mom. The mother gets all the credit. So it is with the new birth. When someone puts their faith in Jesus, they can never boast as if they did something, as if they mustered up the courage to reject what culture said about what they should believe, and they were strong enough to say, no, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. No, the heart's corrupted above all things. Unless Jesus gets a hold of your heart, you can't muster the strength to put your faith in Jesus. It's impossible. God is the one who gets all the credit capturing your heart. When we look back at our faith and we celebrate the miracles that God's done in our faith and we begin to groan in those desert months, do we remember the miracle of what God's done in our life? He took a heart of stone out of you and gave you a new spirit. Do you know the miracle that that is? Number two, in a birth, the first physical, physical birth, usually children kick and scream the whole way. No kid is sitting in the womb saying, man, I just can't wait to get out of here. The first thing they do when they take a child out of the womb is they put it under a heat lamp in those first few hours because they're trying to simulate the warmth and the comfort that was inside the womb of the mother. And the thing about it is, is that children that are in the womb have no idea what they're missing. They're blind to it. They can't see a sunset. They can't understand human relationships. They don't understand the love of a mother or a father yet. 
All they know is their little world, and they're content in that little world because that's all they know. They know nothing else. And, and so it is with the new birth. We actually, before God changes our hearts and gives us a new perspective, we can't actually even understand fully what God has offered to us. God has to actually give us the new birth, and then we open our eyes and we look around and we say, miraculous, totally miraculous. And number three, the cost of our first birth is tremendous pain to the mother who gives birth. The, the cost is tremendous pain. Any woman who is a mother in this room can say amen to that, that there is tremendous pain that happens for the first birth. And so is it with the second birth. The pain that is experienced in order to the second birth to be able to take place is that one man was crucified up on a cross. Someone had to go through intense, excruciating pain where they hung on a cross and allowed their blood to drip down that cross in order that we might experience the newness of the new birth and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. There is no birth without pain. Jesus took that pain on himself so that you could receive that new birth. Let me read to us the rest of this passage from 9 through 15 because it gets really clear. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you again, listen up, Nicodemus. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. He's saying, hey, Nicodemus, I just came from heaven. I know what I'm talking about. That's where I've been. I've been in heaven. I've come down to you, and I'm telling you truth. So listen very carefully. And then hear verse 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted that serpent up in the wilderness, so was Jesus lifted up on a pole. And there are similarities here that Jesus is saying to us. When we think about the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross, certainly he had nails dug through his hands and through his feet. And certainly the pain of torture by crucifixion was awful. But in that moment, as Jesus hung on a cross, he took on himself the brokenness of his sheep. He took on himself the curse. He literally, in a sense, became the cursed serpent as he took all of it on himself and the father turned his face away so that one man took on all the filth of the human heart so that we would not be held accountable for it on our judgment day because Jesus has fully dealt with it on the cross as he was lifted up just like the serpent was lifted up. And here's the truth. Jesus says, if you will just look at that cross, if you will just look at Jesus and confess just like those Israelites did and said, I have a broken heart. I've put myself in this position. It's my fault that I have a broken heart. No one else's. And I need salvation. God says, I've provided Jesus for you. Just look up on this cross. Repent of your sin. Change your ways by God's grace. And make this man on the cross your king. And scripture says, you will be born again for the 
first time experiencing the kingdom of God. You can experience that today. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. You know, for Nicodemus, there was a whole lot of shame in confessing that he needed a new birth. A guy like Nicodemus had been around groups like this every single day for decades. For him to get on his knees and say Jesus was king and he needed a new birth, take a lot of guts to say, you know what, I've been doing this wrong. It's time for me to repent and truly make Jesus king of my life. And I don't think he could do it that day. We meet Nicodemus a few more times in the Gospel of John. But today, I believe in this room right now, there are many of you who are just like Nicodemus. Perhaps you've been coming around church for a long time. Perhaps you've been in this room and you know all the religious things you're supposed to be doing. Maybe Jesus has been part of your vocabulary for a long time, but you've never actually received the new birth. You've never been flooded by the Holy Spirit where all of a sudden your life changes and, and there's not other things that are the king of your life, but suddenly Jesus is king and you want to make him king and you want to lift him up above all other things and live that flourishing lifestyle that Jesus says is better than anything you could ever taste in this life. And you can't fully explain how it happened, but Jesus just had his way with you. If you've never experienced that, 2 Corinthians says now is the time. There is no shame in saying, I need that today for the first time. As I close, we look at Nicodemus and we come back to him a few more times. Nicodemus' journey at the very end of the Gospel of John, we meet Nicodemus again. And it's right after Jesus has been crucified on that cross. And it tells us this, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, took Jesus and was going to lay him in a tomb. And this was a man who had put his faith in Jesus. And then John chapter 19, verse 39 says this, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus came to anoint the body of Jesus with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. This is what it means to trust in Christ, that no matter where you are in this journey, however long you've been in it, God can get a hold of your life and bring you to that place of new birth. Now, I know many of you came in this room today not thinking today was going to be the day that I trust in Jesus for the first time, but I genuinely want to invite you. I want to invite you right now as a response to John chapter 3. If you're in this room and you've never for the first time said Jesus is my king and there's no way I'm looking back. Whatever he's got, I want. My life isn't living up to the picture Jesus has said. I want to invite you today for the first time to receive Jesus as your Lord. What we're going to do is we're going to celebrate communion.